This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, this is Robert Duncan McNeil, also known as Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 12 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today we are beginning a new series on Robert Hewitt Wolf, looking at his career as, I don't really know how to define it, a creative, not, not, not just a creator, not just a developer, but like the, the driving force behind a television show or project. I know that it's hard to make this a clearly defined category for your bizarre OCD, but I would say as um, an unsung hero of many sci-fi shows. Okay, that's what we'll call him, as an unsung hero. Today we're going to be looking at his work in Star Trek, and we're joined by Matt of the Delta Quadrant. How's it going, Matt? It's going well. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. So, Matt, for for those people who don't know... um, you you are definitely a Star Trek fan. <laughs> in fact, I was uh, in attendance. I was in the room watching as you filled out a uh, a trivia contest while drunk and schooled everyone else at this Star Trek convention. Oh, that's right. You were with me. Because, yeah, I don't remember. I remember Charlene was there, and I remember Lori was there, and I was kind of drunk and just focused on one thing. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. It was like you were just like in the zone. You were like Michael Jordan when he was, you know, in the finals or something like that. It was it was insane, and no one stood a chance against you. I was, some, somehow I felt smarter as I was drunk. Like I was doing things faster than I would have been sober. You didn't have that self-doubt filter on. I did, kind of, because I didn't want to do it at first, but they pushed mm. me into it. So yes, if you want to know anything about Star Trek, Matt is the guy to ask for sure. But you also do a podcast on Voyager. I do, I do. It's called the Delta Quadrant. It's through the Trekmate Network. I've been a co-host since season three, no, episode three of season one. Yeah, that there, there we go. So that has been going on for, I just had my two-year podcasting anniversary back last November. That's pretty cool. And, and to date, we're on season, we're in the middle of season five. So you've got about a, maybe a year and a half left? Uh, if all goes according to plan, we should be done sometime in the spring, early summer mm-hmm. of 2015. So do you, do you have any idea what, what you're going to do after you're done with the Delta Quadrant? Or Not a clue. All right, all right. With, with, without the Delta Quadrant, there would be no commentary track stars, so... Uh, Go check it out for sure. It's over on, on TrekMate. But despite the fact that you do the Voyager show, you are at heart a Deep Space Nine fan, correct? Absolutely. This, Absolutely. This is your favorite series of the five or six? It, it most certainly is. Good for you. We, <laughs> we agree. We approve. Well, let's take a look at Robert Hewitt Wolf's career. Like we were just saying off mic, it's kind of hard to define because... As a member of the writing staff of Deep Space Nine, 
it, it really feels like such a group effort that even though certain people are credited with certain episodes, it's not as clear cut as that. There, there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of uh, big ideas which were brought to the table by various people and it's kind of hard to, to separate who did what on the show. But before we get into Deep Space Nine, Wolf got his start on The Next Generation with a script for Fistful of Datas. Mm-hmm. This was season six, correct? Pretty season sure. six, yeah, that's right. And which means that he was like 27 years old when he wrote this thing, or 20, 26, insanely young. But It's kind of amazing, and I think Next Generation, you know, I, it's a show I really like too, and I, what I appreciated about it is they took a lot of pitches from young writers. I mean, I, I think that Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga were both very young when yeah. they joined that writing staff as well. So Yeah, for sure. Well, Fistful of Data's, for those people who don't remember, is the, the holodeck episode with, with Worf where uh, he's in the Old West and there's a bunch of Data's running around. You forgot mm-hmm. about Alexander, the star of the episode. Oh, yeah, Alexander's in it, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good episode. People forget like that it's actually good because they remember just how silly it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, people rate this as some. I've seen this pop up on some of the worst of TNG lists, and I, I, I think to myself, I can think of ten other episodes that are far worse than this. I actually love this episode. Yeah, I, it's it's one of those things. It's it's one of those weird things where like uh, you judge the original series silliness um, with very little with very little uh, rancor, but uh, the silliness on Next Gen is vilified as though it's like like it maybe ruined the show periodically, which is crazy because. The silliest episodes were still pretty close to the the other episodes in terms of like overall dramatic function. To, yeah, and you know, I think what D- TNG and, and DS Nine also proved is that it's okay to have fun once in a while. Yeah, and there's nothing. That's the thing that's weird about. It. I mean, this is one of the least silly of the silly episodes. There's an episode where a bunch of characters turn into kids for no good reason. <laughs> like you cannot say that a fistful of datas is bad because it's silly, and then somehow not want to kill people because of rascals. See, right. I, I love rascals. I, I don't mind it too much either. In fact, I would say that TNG season six is probably my favorite season of that show. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure, by far. Um, but uh, fistful of datas, I think, is a perfectly good episode too. It, it would never be at the the top of the list for me, but it's nowhere close to the bottom either i definitely think it's a, a solid episode of television it would be I, I i don't know exactly where this would show up in like an overall hierarchy of episodes but it, like it's not it if there was a if there was a bottom 20 it wouldn't be in that if there was a top 20 it might very well be in that yeah i wouldn't go that far but it was, it's definitely upper middle for sure okay <laughs> apparently it was good enough because uh, Wolf was invited back a couple years later. Not even. No, I mean, no, I guess it would be. T- TNG season six is the season that DS9 premieres. So they're, they're, right. when he pitches Fistful of Datas, they were just getting ready to go on with DS9. So I'm sure once they saw this script, they, they're like, hey, we could use this guy on the new show. Right. So he would have been like 28 then, mm-hmm. probably around this time. Okay, 27, 28. So they invite him in to uh, rewrite Q-less. 
which is the episode of of Deep Space Nine, which features Vash and Q mm. very early on in season one. And according to uh, Terry Erdman's book on uh, the making of Deep Space Nine, the Deep Space Nine Companion, which is uh, one of the best books ever written about a television show, after the first draft of Culus, the producers were so impressed by by Wolf's work that they offered him uh, a job on the writing staff, which he accepted, and uh, quickly started writing episodes in, in season one, including the finale of season one in the hands of the prophets so right there i mean that's a that's a pretty big deal anytime you're writing the finale of a a television show and a show which at this point didn't have a whole lot of continuity and this was one of maybe four or five episodes in that first season which were very continuity heavy in terms of the mythology uh and 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 they give it to him Mm -hmm. so what, what do you guys think about in in the hands of the prophets well, Mike, you and I, a long time ago, were on the best of DS9 uh, seasons for Collins' show. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, In the Hands of the Prophets was actually one of the episodes I chose as my, one of my favorites from season one. Yeah, I'm sure I did, too. And uh, I think it's brilliant. I mean, Robert Hewitt Wolf, as they got later into season one, was instrumental in breaking away from DS9 season one's TNG mold. I feel like early DS9 season one is much more concerned with bringing over the TNG audience. So that's why it's so broken up and episodic where it won't later be. But toward the end of season one, you start planting the seeds of what the show eventually will become. And it culminates in this episode. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where you get, of course, Louise Fletcher as Vedic win for the first time, who is both masterfully written and acted from episode one. Definitely. The other episode from season one, which Wolf is credited uh, with writing, is The Passenger. Um, uh, Ray Ovantica. Yeah, that was the one, right, where the guy implants his personality on Bashir. Uh, Bashir. A, a precursor to uh, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Dude, people implant their personalities on members of of Star Trek crews a lot. But using, like, microchips and stuff? Well, not exactly (laughs) using microchips, but lest we forget the finale of TOS, where a woman switches bodies with Kirk. Oh, I thought we were forgetting that. I thought that was the new rule. (laughs) So moving on to season two, uh, the first episode that that he uh, co-wrote was Invasive Procedures, and then he also did uh, Second Sight, uh, Shadow Play, and then The Wire, which a lot of people think is one of the best episodes of the series. He created Omar. So, Matt, what are your thoughts on The Wire? It's like you said, I think it's, it is one of the best episodes, maybe if not of the whole series, but definitely of season two. That's where, I mean, Garrick becomes much more nuanced because up to that point we had seen him in the second episode of season one and I believe in the episode Cardassians in season two. And in his second appearance, he gets a little bit more nuanced. But here you start delving into the man's past. And this is where you meet uh, in Abrantain for the first time. And his story becomes one of such, you know, intrigue and mystery that makes him one of the best recurring characters in all of Star Trek, if not all of science fiction. 
I think that's definitely true. Max, any thoughts on the wire? Um, I I have I have a weird feeling about uh, about Gary because when I when the show was originally on, I didn't really care for any episode that was centered around Garrett. Really, and uh, and and then towards the end of the series, like he became very you know like a very important character in the overall arc of the show, and uh, and now when I watch it, I don't find Garrick episodes um, as tedious as I did originally because I know where they're going, but. Uh, like he's he's just mysterious without any real answers or, or, or significance. He's like mm-hmm. a spy, but like just that's what he is. He's a spy, sort of, kind of, maybe. And like there's there's so little actual information about what he is. I don't even know if I'm supposed to hate this guy early on because I don't know. I still don't know where his loyalties lie in season one. Well, See, but for me, that was the that was the interesting part about him is that I because the mystery was so was so palliative and so intense that I liked guess not knowing where this guy was going to go. Yeah, for me, for me, it was just I I got the impression that nobody knew where it was. I got the impression that the writers didn't know where his loyalties lied, and that basically they were just coming up with it as it went along. Yeah, they probably were, but and, uh, yeah, I, I, I you know I can't, I can't get I can't get interested in a character who who maybe at some point will be given a motive that makes sense i mean to me like i i guess what you're saying max is how he started off and and really like throughout through the first season that's really how i felt about him and you know starting with things like the wire you start uh you know peeling back the layers on that character and understanding what's going on with him and uh i think there was a a definite shift somewhere in the middle of the series pretty much unannounced where they were just like oh you know, this character has gone from, well, you don't know, maybe he is this, maybe he isn't this, we, we we don't know, to just like, yes, he is that, you know that he is that, we know that he is that, we might not say it flat out. To, to me, it, as the series progressed, it, it became clear that, you know, he was not plain and simple Garrick, you know well, what I mean? We, we, well, get, we, we, we get told yeah. that pretty flat out with that two-parter in season three. Right. Uh, improbable cause in the Dias cast. And that's probably that's probably the point, you know. Season but, three is, is where it starts to change, but early on I found Garrick episodes tedious because I don't, I, I still don't think that they really knew what they were doing with him. But The Wire, am I mistaken in that The Wire would be the first episode where he actually plays a role which is something beyond just, you know, mysterious guy in the corner well he kind of had a more expanded role in cardassians that second episode that he was in but not terribly significant this is the first time where he's the a story right yeah yeah with that one it was more he was brought in because of this other character but this is where it's definitely him this is also the one where it's they finally sort of admit yeah he's a spy Mm -hmm. we're not gonna say what kind of spy but yes you know it we know it (laughs) I believe this is also the episode where we first hear the words Obsidian Order for the first time. No, well, that could be. Yeah. Yeah. So the the final episode that he wrote in season two was The Collaborator, which he, he co-wrote with Iris Stephen Bear. Now, what, what do you guys think about that one? That, that There's a lot of, uh, I won't say debate, but a lot of interesting discussion about that episode. I'm kind of middle of the road to positive on this one. Now, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But I think what he, you know just judging from he was a writer of both in the hands of the prophets and the collaborator he does a pretty good job of establishing the character of win and um if the episode gets nothing else right her characterization is pretty much solidified by this episode i mean it was solidified in the first one but this one she actually gets to be kai mm-hmm. and she she's going to be obviously 
I, I don't know if they knew ahead of time, but they're, they're planning her in a position where she's going to be a constant problem now because she has the power to be. A lot of the episodes of, the, of Deep Space Nine play so close to like actual historical precedent that it, so, and sometimes I do find it frustrating that no one is like bringing up how similar things are to things that happened in Earth history. And this is definitely one of those episodes. So if you look at uh, here, you know, Second Sight and The Collaborator, both of those are, were written by Bear. Uh, whether or not that was by design, I don't know. But uh, you could tell that they hit on something. Because in between seasons, it was Bear and Wolf who came up with the idea for The Defiant and pitched it to, to Berman and whatnot. Yeah. Originally, originally the called, called The Valiant, oh, but they... They they dropped it because they didn't want another V ship because Voyager was about to premiere, so it, it it took on the much I think cooler name of the Defiant. Yeah, but they still got in that joke oh, in season yeah. six, six or seven. You're, you're, six. A ter- you're a terrible person. I love that joke. Anyway, well, what what do you guys think about the Defiant? At the time, it was obviously uh, um, seen by some as a cop out. And it was seen by others as a uh, as blasphemy, you know, a warship in in the Star Trek universe. And uh, to some people, it was just seen as something which was rather badass. Uh, Matt, where where do you fall on the Defiant? Well, first off, were you watching Deep Space Nine at this point in time, or or not? No, and see, this is the the I, I guess you would call frustrating thing. Uh, I, I was just about to get into Star Trek around this time because the Defiant is introduced in like the fall of '94, I think, is when this, the the third season premieres. I do not jump on board the Star Trek bandwagon until my dad takes me to see Generations when it's in the theaters later in '94. Okay, and and then I start watching the Next Generation reruns. Mm-hmm. I never got to DS9 until 2000. Was it 2003 when the when the bo- when the DVD sets came out? Uh, it would have been right around that time because I remember watching them with my cat, and right. I got him in two thousand three. That's when I started getting into it because I I tried to watch DS Nine, but when it was originally on, because it was syndicated, it was on really late, so it was like mm. past my bedtime when I was a kid. And uh, second of all, I mean, by the time I started jumping on, it was it well into season four or end of season three, so like I was lost. Yeah. And you know, when you're that young. You're not ready to comprehend a serialized story. I mean, I was all of, you know, seven years old. So it took me until I was 14 to actually start watching it. But if you're asking me where I fell on The Defiant when I got to it, I fell into the rather badass category because they had established the need for weaponry with the season two finale with the Jemadar. DS9 kind of helped me realize that I was never that in love with the Gene Roddenberry concept of utopia to begin with. I mean, it's a fun thought, but it doesn't, uh, make itself presentable for the essence of drama, which is conflict. So I appreciated when DS9 broke away from those um, rules and traditions of, of some of the previous Star Treks, and The Defiant was the representation of that. And when it came in, it was just the coolest little ship that ever existed. And, you know, I think it's a, it, when The Defiant comes in is when people say, now, looking back on it, say, DS9 has arrived. And, you know, it becomes such an integral part to the series from then forward. So they had a good impulse there. And uh, it made them mobile, which was a complaint of a lot of viewers. During this period, I, I talked with a lot of people about a lot of things. And uh, Star Trek was a regular topic of conversation. 
And when Deep Space Nine was in this period, and the divide was introduced, it was a topic of conversation. And around the table, various people had various opinions. And I recall one friend of mine thought, good, finally, get off that station, do some stuff. And I thought, yes. And another friend said, it's kind of stupid that they're bringing out a ship. I mean, weren't they doing, weren't they doing like the exact opposite? They were like, we're not going to be doing that. And now they're like, just saying, ah, screw it, we got to do that. And I was like, interesting. And And my feeling was... I don't think that I am on board with any of these um, hypotheses. I don't think that it's that simple. And uh, ultimately, I think that, the, that we don't know if this will work until we see how they use it. And, uh, and, and I take issue with the idea that it was in some way like in, in defiance, no pun intended, of the Roddenberry rules and ideals, because it really isn't. Like, on the surface, if you don't look at it with any depth, I mean, it's very easy to say, like, oh, it's a warship. That's a, that's a betrayal of Roddenberry's ideals. But but it's really not. It's just it's just one of those weird edge cases where you go, I guess, even in a utopia, you would need a ship capable of doing some pretty awesome damage if you were dealing with the Borg. Yeah. So, well, like, all of that kind of... It kind of it, it, like, you have to look at it on, this, on, on, the, on the case itself, on what it actually is. And what it actually is... Was was really just another element in the show's overall like toolkit, like having a station, like yeah, they still have the station, and having the defiant basically just means that they can defend the station better, and that's really all they really do with it for like a couple years until like the the war really gets started, and like the war is a whole different argument, and that I had that conversation with very different and much angrier friends um but like like the defiant was not a big deal for me. I was basically just waiting for how they would use it okay yeah for for me, like at this point in time, I was young when I was watching it. I was fourteen years old as well, and you know I remember going to conventions and overhearing people uh when when Deep Space Nine first started, and I remember hearing you know vendors and fans talking and saying like, "This show's never going to work because they're not leaving the station. This is ridiculous." And I always thought that that was a weird thing, and I liked the fact that Deep Space Nine was different and that and that people were coming to them and that they had like sort of a a safe haven for which these characters to to grow. But I was impressed with Deep Space Nine right out of the gate. I was also at that age. Uh, willing to accept anything that Star Trek wanted to give me. But I do remember, you know, with with season seven of, of Next Generation airing and everyone, you know, going all crazy over the fact that it was ending and it it, it got that nomination for the Emmy for Best uh, Drama. Hmm. And I remember thinking, that's weird because clearly the current season of, of Deep Space Nine, season two, is better than than uh, season seven of, of Next Gen. That's not true, but that's fine. It, it is true. But no, it's not, but whatever. But it was at that point that I was so in love with Deep Space Nine that when they said the Defiant was happening, first off, as a kid, it's like, oh, uh, a ship which is designed to blow things up? Yes, please, now. But also... I was like, I'll watch whatever they're, they're going to show me. I, I totally trust these guys because they're making some awesome television right now. You know, my life was was uh, built around Deep Space Nine at that point in time. And at this point you had been a Star Trek fan for about six or seven months? No, at that point it was like two years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I saw, I, saw, I saw my first episode of Star Trek nine days before Deep Space Nine premiered. That's 
Ridiculous. It's weird, isn't it? No. Just coincidence. But it's not weird. It's just bad. Okay. So I was I was all for the defiance, and that then once it it, it came out. What did you guys think? You know, what, I mean, Matt, how do you feel that the Defiant was used by the show? Well, I feel like I'm kind of commenting on my feelings like post the, after the fact because I saw it way after the show was over, so yeah. I could see exactly where it was going. If you know, immediately if I wanted to, I never had to wait for it. Yeah, but um, I loved what they did with it. What I, what I think DS9 did best, and one of my favorite things for DS9, was that uh, it took the seeds that were planted in the next generation of this 24th century universe, and it looked deeper into them. And we found out more about the species that, that we were introduced to in Next Gen. And the Defiant was another tool that helped do that. Now, you know, like Max said, it wasn't really used for much beyond certain missions until the war. But I think by being mobile, it just made the show more expansive, and uh, it 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 just opened the the door for for new and creative ideas. And it was a badass ship, and at four, still at fourteen years old, I loved it. Max, honestly, I don't think it's even worth talking about. Like, it's just a thing that they did on the show. Like the idea that they introduced a ship on Deep Space Nine. Why is that a why is that a topic of debate? Like it's a thing that happened on Star Trek and it didn't really change the show in any significant way. So the only reason like it's a thing that people talk about is because at the time people were like, Heavens no! Oh, those fools of Deep Space Nine, know they not what they do there? Have they not read Star Trek books? It's ridiculous. I mean, like, they they made a good show, and there was a spaceship at some point, and it fit totally into the storyline. It doesn't even feel forced when it's introduced. It feels like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. They would get a ship. It, I mean, yeah, I, I can see what you say, but I, get, I guess my thinking is, like, it, it was a big deal. You know, it was a big... Um, it was a silly thing to be a big deal. Well, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> but, but I mean, if you look at the way that, that Star Trek has always operated and the way it's been structured, like, I can imagine Bear and Wolf sitting around, you know, one of their offices uh, discussing this and, and coming up with this idea and then just building it up and building it up in, 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 their, in their heads and then thinking, like, there's no way that they're going to let us do this, you know? And then and then pitching it to say Berman or whoever, and and you know thinking probably that that they're going to get rejected. I mean, I, I can definitely see the risk there. I, the, the the thing is that I think that when we when we make a big deal out of this thing that they did that was so bold, we're ignoring that like really it's not. Really, it's not a huge thing that they did. Like, like if you if you, if I told you that there was a spe- there was a science fiction show that was then a space station, and like for a long time they did all of their traveling in these like, little tiny ships, like like maybe hold like five people at like maximum, and then they got a much bigger ship in like season three. Like, would you think that that was a weird thing? Well, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is for for a science fiction show, yes, no, whatever, but for the show which was supposed to be the 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 space station show yeah and like like presenting a spaceship that can carry a bunch of people 
that doesn't change the Look, show. I, I don't have any problem with it. I think it's perfectly fine, but I can definitely see how it was a big deal. My problem is time. is that it's is that it actually isn't a big deal. And when we make a big deal out of it because people thought it was a big deal, then we're essentially playing into the idea that because some people think it's a big deal, we need to all have a debate about this thing that was really just a good plot point. Well then good, let's have a debate about it because at that point next gen is off the air. Voyager's not ready. It, even if it wasn't a big deal, which I think is questionable, uh, it got people's attention. And, it, and it, people are talking about the show and yeah. are curious about the show, whether they're negative on the idea of the Defiant or for the idea of the Defiant. They're talking about the show, which is the ultimate goal. You yeah. want people talking about your show. I think, and, and I think that there's, there's, there's sort of a, there's a negative side to it, too, because a lot of the, the debate about Deep Space Nine essentially comes down to why it wasn't popular, why it wasn't successful. And people say, because they were on a space station, because it was more serialized, because it was almost entirely driven by the characters' stories, because of all of those things that made it good, um, that's why we really can't do it again. Yeah. And that is precisely the thing that we should not be playing into. No, like that's true. why that's why we got Voyager and then Enterprise, and why we'll never get a show set in Star Trek on a space station ever again. No, you could be right. All right, well, let's move on to season three. And if we take a look at season three, this is when he definitely teamed up with Iris Stephen Bear almost full time. And you look at the stuff that they did together, either having written the episodes themselves or having written the screenplays or just the stories. He was involved with The Search, which was the premiere, um, Second Skin, Past Tense, which was another two-parter, which was a really big deal, Heart of Stone, which was the episode which played in every single city that I went to on my road trip with my family that summer on vacation. It was stalking you. Yep. <laughs> um Profit Motive, Distant Voices, Through the Looking Glass, Family Business, and then the finale, The Adversary. I mean, those are all the really big episodes. And of course, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that his his writing partner is the showrunner. But mm -hmm. maybe that's something that we should talk about is, you know, Iris Stephen Bear, as the showrunner, presumably can write with whoever the hell he wants to. And he picked Wolf because, for whatever reason, the two of them had chemistry. And, you know, when, when we were in, in Vegas at, at uh, the convention, you know, I saw Iris Stephen Bear talk, and uh, someone brought up, I think, Ron Moore or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and Bear was very quick to point out that even though other people on the staff get a lot of credit because basically they were there the whole time a, a lot of the credit for the series success really needs to go to Robert Hewitt Wolf and a lot of the ideas like the defiant and um some of the development with the dominion and and, and what have you yeah. came from Wolf and, and he was there before more more doesn't come into the to the series until next gen ends so he doesn't come in till season three right so he was actually there the same amount of time as all those guys who finished the show it, the, he was just there on the front end instead of the back end right and and that that quote is actually why i i wanted to do robert Yard wolf for this yeah because uh he was like i knew he was a significant player but like i thought of him as like a bishop you know, I thought, like, he's a bishop. Ron Moore was probably, like, a knight or maybe a rook. And uh, Iris Stephen Bear was either the king or the queen. It doesn't matter. Whichever 
beard color he had at the time would determine that. And and like I and I didn't really think a lot about it, but like when I heard that, I was like, "Is Remember you and is he is he one of them? Is he is he the queen? Is he the king? Which one is he? Because like he obviously had to be one of them for a while, and if, that changed my perception of how Deep Space Nine developed. If you're not going to count pillars, see, we're getting away from our Beatles analogy, which was very solid. <laughs> but if if you if you you want to if you want to have all of the guys, you have to expand it out of the Beatles. Okay. No, it, Look, needs to become, it needs to become more like an Earth, Wind, and Fire thing. Where there's like seventeen members. Well, let, let's just let's just say this though. Okay, <laughs> we, we we said this in our Ron Moore thing. We were trying to figure out who was the Beatles, and we were saying, you know, if Iris Stephen Bear is is uh, if John is the Kirk, if uh, who no, is the Iris Stephen Bear? Jesus. And and don't, Ringo is the is the Chekhov. Don't make this any more complicated than I want to make it as complicated as possible. I want to no, make this you, a game of three D showrunner chess analogy <laughs> metaphors. You're gonna send Mike and then OCD <laughs> panic. But let's just go back here. When when we did our Ron Moore series, we were trying to figure out who was who as far as a Beatles analogy is concerned, and we said Iris Stephen Bear was John. No, and Ron Moore. I never was said Paul. that. Maybe you didn't, but I that's, said that's I kind don't. Of what we th- came I up don't with. think that you can figure out where Iris Stephen Bear fits in that metaphor. My point was that Iris Stephen Bear and our understanding of Deep Space Nine don't do not fit the Beatles metaphor. Maybe, but that's not what we were saying back then, for sure. Regardless, I said he might be the George. So I asked Robert Hewitt Wolf on Twitter, mm-hmm. "Who was who? Which Beatle was which?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "You know, Pillar is John, Ira is Paul." too many people to figure out the other ones however i think if you were to ask iris stephen bear he would say that if he were john his paul was robert hewitt wolf okay but if you ask john <laughs> which deep space nine showrunner and, and and creative person was was the him of the show he would say I've been dead for several decades. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, you get to ask him via Ouija board. <laughs> regardless. Regardless of all this. We asked the, the prophets what John would think. Yes. The, the, point, would know. the point of all this is that while not as high profile as Michael Piller or Iris Stephen Bear or Ron Moore, or maybe even not as high profile as Renee Echevarria, I think that Robert Hewitt Wolf and... Uh, uh, you know, Iris Stephen Bear, and I think everyone else here would agree, had a a much larger role in in the creation of this series than most people give him credit for. Yeah, and that's why I want to do this because I I don't I, like until I heard that I didn't think about him as being that significant uh, a player in Deep Space Nine and Star Trek history. But apparently, I, I have to I have to like add in his involvement. And it, maybe it'll help some pieces make sense because there are still some outliers that uh, that I can't contextualize from Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Okay, so just moving on to his last couple years. Not that there's much more to add to this, but just to, to, to give him credit where credit is due. Season four, he did The Way of the Warrior, Little Green Men, Homefront, and Paradise Lost, Bar Association, Hard Time, To the Death, Broken Link, Ap- Apocalypse Rising. He was one of the writers of the story of Trials and Tribulations, which I guess everyone was. Uh, Let He Who Is Without Sin, 
The Ascent, In Purgatory's Shadow, By Inferno's Light, Ties of Blood and Water. We get it. He wrote the season. Blaze of Glory and Call to Arms. That's seasons four and five. So he ended with the finale. And after writing all of those episodes, he decided that it was time to move on. In in the Erdman book, uh, Bear says that he knew that he was going to be leaving. He could just sense it. And it sounds like he was basically burned out. And uh, according to Wolf, he didn't really feel like he could uh, do justice to those characters anymore. He thought that that he had done everything that he could do with them and yep. that it was time to, to move on to other things. Yeah, you hear about it from time to time. I mean, that, that, that happens on like any long-running show. People who've been around since the beginning leave at some point despite having done a whole bunch of amazing stuff. And people ask them, why did you leave? And they always say... Uh, I couldn't think of anything else. Yeah, I was uh, I was I, I was tapped out. Right, which is understandable. I can totally I see so. that. A yeah. bunch of people left the X Files in like season five, and like like at the time I was like, why are these guys going? And apparently it was like they, we ran out of urban legends. <laughs> we couldn't think of anything else. Yeah, yeah. When we did the third vampire episode, we were like, uh, we're out, we're done. Yep. He did come back to write one episode. Freelance in season seven, which was Field of Fire, um, which I don't even know what that episode. Which is, is one of the few, which is one of the few Esri episodes I like. Um, it's the one where she uh, has, to, with ha- has to <laughs> has to find the killer and uses Jaran. Oh, okay, yeah, I like that episode. It's good. Yeah. Every Esri episode is fantastic. <laughs> Mm. She's the best character on Deep Space Nine. Mm. Max named his cat Esri. If that tells you anything, it tells it tells you a lot if you know me. Yes. All right. Well, Matt, any uh, final thoughts on Robert Hewitt Wolf and his uh, work in Star Trek? Well, you know, having watched the box sets, I watched a lot of the behind the scenes features, and he figures prominently into a lot of them. And when he talks, I can see the passion that he had for for what he was doing and how proud of the work that he did. You know what I mean. He was yeah. proud of his own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's very much deserved. I mean, going through that list that you just rattled off, I mean, I only found one episode that I didn't really care for. The rest I loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was instrumental in making the show what it was. And I'm glad you guys are doing the show because he, you're right. He's an unsung hero. I, the misconception, and, and I held this for a long time, is that, you know, Ronald D. Moore was the one who made the show what it was. And he did play an instrumental part. I'm not trying to downplay Ronald D. Moore. But, you know, because I think later, because of what he does with Battlestar, a lot of the darker elements of DS9 are attributed to him mm-hmm. because they're his style. But, no, Wolf was there from the beginning and doing it before Moore was. Moore jumped on and helped. But it really, a lot of it originates from Wolf. And I think that, you know, credits do where it's due. And so... I will always be grateful to him. DS9, like you said, is my favorite series. So, And he played a, a, an instrumental part in that. Yeah. Max, any final thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I, I think this, the context that we have here doesn't really facilitate the, the, the ability to have final thoughts. My thoughts are essentially, this is going to be interesting. Because I, I am very excited to start tracing lines to connect things. Because, I, I like... The, the some elements that are in Deep Space Nine that uh, I've never been able to quite fit together with other elements 
I think it might actually start to fit together once I, I understand RPU and Wolf's involvement, who I like to call RH Dubs. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm excited about figuring out what his deal is. And I think I, I've got like a little preview because I have actually watched a whole bunch of Andromeda. I watched a whole bunch of it for our Roddenberry thing mm-hmm. um, because I actually enjoyed watching it. But I, I'm, I'm excited to, to have final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I, I think what you're saying is really interesting. Yes, he did play an integral role in Deep Space Nine, and it is kind of amazing. You know, he's one of those guys. I mean, with with all of those guys on Deep Space Nine, even people like uh, like Ron Moore, it's hard to to separate and say like, oh yeah, you gotta love that guy. He wrote that episode, which is totally something you can do on Next Gen or or the original series. Mm-hmm. But here, it's just like you can tell a Minoski episode. Right from, from a, a mile like, away. Well, from like a thumbnail, <laughs> like several rooms away. Right, but out of focus. But with DS Nine, it's completely different. You know, the, the, it was really a team. You know, it's it's not like uh, it's not like basketball where you have one superstar who's just dominating the court, and the other four guys just need to be passable. It, it's it's like baseball where you have, you know, a pitching rotation and five guys and they all need to be on their game otherwise, you know, one one superstar is not going to do the trick. So, he was definitely I would say a solid number 2 pitcher. Um and baseball analogies are fine because we're talking about Deep Space 9. You know, if if Bear was the ace of the staff, Robert Hewitt Wolf, RH Dubs was was a solid number 2. Wait, so, if he was the ace Yes, that's what they call it. Never mind, I'll explain it later. So there's a card metaphor in baseball? It could be, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So who's the Joker? The the, the Bat Boy. Who cares? You know, let's just move on. Enough, <laughs> enough with the metaphors. <laughs> I like it when we get lost in metaphors. Okay, all right, fair enough. But, but like you're saying, I am really curious to see because, you know, he left the show to go do other things. And now we're going to get to see what those other things were. Yeah. And I'm excited because I'm really not that familiar with any of them. So it will be an exciting journey. So, so Matt. Uh, yes. Where, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, you can reach me through my Twitter handle. It's at mhansen0207, and Hansen is H-A-N-S-E-N. And you can also reach me at the Delta Quadrant. Our handle for that is at Delta Quadrant Cast. Q-U-A-D-T underscore cast. And uh, where where can people find the, the podcast? The podcast is part of the Trekmate network, so it's trekmate.org.uk, and we release new episodes every Thursday. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, yeah. Uh, we, thank you lo- for having me. Oh, no problem. And, and we'd love to have you back on the show anytime. I'd love to come back. Well, that was fun talking to Matt about uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf. Yes, it was. That guy knows a whole lot about Star Trek. It's kind of intimidating, actually. Yes. He knows more about Star Trek than Memory Alpha. Yes. But that's not the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM over here. Uh, we've got uh, a bunch of shows for you. We've got new shows, got the melodic treks going, we've got special things with the Matter Stream talking to, like, uh, Richard Hatch and stuff like that. Uh, So here's a a taste of what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. (laughs) 
pitching a piece of the action movie. I think we can definitely might, say that the they might go that the that, Transformers though. planet doesn't work. They might go for that. Would you go for that, Drew? I mean, personally, I would shy away from it because then you'd be. Or would you be, shy uh, away? It would from be. It. You're a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> Earl Grey. William T. Riker. Imagine now if he'd come back with a goatee or mutton chops. We could have been a very different Riker. Hipster Riker. Number one, are you wearing glasses? <laughs> no, it's Jordy's visor. I just... <laughs> I'm reading a pad that you've never heard of before. The Ready Room. Inside a lot of time with Mark Cushman. But something else that you'll find out in book two is that they almost didn't have Leonard Nimoy and Mr. Spock for season two of Star Trek. Uh, his agent wanted more money for Leonard and for good reason because when he signed on to do the series he was supposed to be uh, a supporting actor and yet he was getting more fan mail than even William Shatner who was the star of the show yet uh, only a fraction of the money the orb move along home as a TOS episode Cisco comparing first contact to dating girls felt like something that Kirk would do as well, you know, t- teaching Charlie Evans about girls in yeah. Charlie X, something like that. To the journey! Voyager on Blu-ray. I know that there's been some outtakes done because you can find clips of them on YouTube, mm-hmm. but there's got to be more, and I want to see them all. Warp 5. Andorians on Enterprise. And so they took this idea where they had antenna and they took this idea where they were blue and from someplace cold, or I don't even know if they were someplace cold when they were on the, the, the TOS, and they, they they just made everything better. Commentary, Trek stars. Iris Steven Bear recap. I think when you look at the, the work that was done on, on Deep Space Nine, what becomes apparent is a group of people who do not feel like they need to do what the original series did in order to accomplish what the original series accomplished. Melodic tricks. Apparently, at one point, Patrick Stewart felt he might be able to actually play on screen himself, although he was delicately pointed out to him by Bryce Martin that he wasn't up to that standard quite yet. Literary tricks. Peaceable Kingdoms with Peyton Ward. I don't really remember why I was the one chosen to back cleanup, other than the fact that I think Margaret, our editor, wanted Picard and the Enterprise E to factor into the final, uh, the final installment, and she had already tapped me to write that story. Matter stream. Star Trek Axelar with Alec Peters and Richard Hatch. If you've ever experienced war or any kind of um, conflict, where Everything is life and death. There's a certain kind of um, resolve, truth, experience that you come to that um, I don't think too many people can understand or ever really, really um, empathize with. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows to get in on the Daily Trek Talk. We have new shows for you every day, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. Or you can stream and download files from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. So, you know, Robert Hewitt Wolf, he's written a book. Uh, um, I think he's written more than one. He might have. He might have written two. Was he a co-writer on the Rules of Acquisition? I feel like it. Yeah. 
my wife carries that that book around with her in her purse. She's also really got, not a good sign. She's also got a copy on her Kindle, just in case she ever needs it. Regardless, don't um, make any business dealings with her. <laughs> he also wrote Star Trek: Deep Space Nine: Legends of the Ferengi, along with Iris Stephen Bear. Uh, now you can get this book for free on Audible.com because you're a Trek FM listener. It's I've actually never read this book myself, but it sounds really interesting. If if you look at the the summary here, once you have their money, never give it back. Anything worth doing is worth doing for money. For centuries, these and other famous Ferengi rules of acquisition have been the guiding principles of the galaxy's most successful entrepreneurs. But the wisdom behind them was not one without a high cost in lives and latinum. Now at last, these inspiring tales of avaricious Ferengi wresting monetary gain from the jaws of poverty are available to the profit-hungry across the galaxy. I'm sold. Yes, that sounds very funny. Ferengi-like, right? Well, funny. It sounds funny. Yeah. This thing's narrated by Armin Shimmerman. I mean, what more could you ask for? Um, you could Armin ask for Shimmerman it. reading a funny book, not having to see him in Ferengi makeup. I don't think there's anything else you could ask for. What if I told you that you could get this book for free? I would say that you're a liar. And beat you to death in the street. And take your money. <laughs> what would a Ferengi say about that? I don't know. But it's true. You can get this book for free. They would say that's up, terrible. <laughs> if you sign up for audible.com. The Ferengi do not approve of this transaction. <laughs> Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source of, for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek.fm listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic books you've yet to read or that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trek.fm and we thank you and Audible for supporting commentary, Trek Stars, and trek.fm. As always, you can find us on trek.fm doing this show. You can also find me on trek.fm doing Standard Orbit and you can find both of us on commentarytrackstars.com where we do commentary track stars off topic with our friend Brandon. Mm-hmm. If you want to leave us some feedback, uh, send us an email at comtrackstars at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at comtrackstars. All right. So there's Robert Hewitt Wolf's career in Star Trek. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what he has up his sleeve for the rest of his career as an unsung hero. And we will be starting that up next week with a television movie that he did right after Deep Space Nine, called Future Sport.